Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Our columnist today writes this. Hospitalization rates haven't yet reached the levels we saw in the spring in the United States, but the danger of an acute health crisis may be even greater. He knows what he's talking about. Sam Fazelli, a senior pharmaceuticals analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence and director of research for EMEA. Sam, what do you mean by an acute health crisis? Yeah, hi, Bonnie. So, um, I, you know, nobody likes to write these things because it depresses me just as well as uh, anybody else who reads it. But when I look at the detail that's coming through and when I see what's going on here in Europe, um, there are a few signals that, that really worry me. So clearly everybody can see that, that um, positive cases are rising rapidly. But then when you look at the data and a lot of you know, people look at the hospitalizations, they go, well, that doesn't seem to happen as much and deaths appear to be a bit lower now, which are absolutely true. What I'm worried about is that 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 there is that we that gives us a false sense of security in that you you the reason hospitalizations are lower is that there's a lot more people who are catching it who are younger who tend to get not sick but then don't forget they go and then pass it on to their elders which takes time then we've also got a lot more stringent about who we hospitalize so that means that whatever hospitalization you see is probably pretty severe patients so you have to take account of that and then, of course, we can treat them better, but, but we haven't necessarily increased the number of beds available. And then on top of that, the virus is going into a trajectory that's, that's likely to be many times higher than it was in the spring, summer months, in that this eventually is likely to be, just like other common cold, a seasonal virus. So although the cases weren't that high in the summer, they're going to be much higher now. So that's what worries me, a combination of all this together. Sam, you're based in France right now, and you've got a lot of experience around the continent. Um, what do you think has been the key driver in the resurgence uh, of the cases in Europe? Has it simply been the seasonality, or is it just fatigue? What, what, are, you, what are you seeing there? I wouldn't be surprised, Paul, if, if it's a combination of all that, but certainly in the colder environments, we do two things happen to us. One is at least two things happen. One is that we tend to be more indoors, which is where the virus has a great time of passing from person to person. And secondly, our lungs re- reduce their ability to be able to clear stuff out. So you, I'm sure you've heard of viral load. If you got 10 viral particles in your lung and it was very good at getting rid of it quickly in the summer where humidity is a bit higher, then that's great. But if that thing 10 go in and you don't get rid of it as much, that's essentially equivalent to having a higher viral load giving you a risk of worse disease. So that's what the risk in the winter is. And of course, if you start off at a higher base already in terms of the virus circulating in people who are infected, then you're setting yourself up for a pretty tragic exponential growth, which is what I think has surprised the UK, the French, and the German authorities. That's an excellent explanation of what happens. I hadn't heard it really explained that plainly before, but it uh, definitely would cause you to be a lot more careful having heard that. And that's just what I was going to ask. Angela Merkel saying that in Germany, they don't know where 75% of the infections are coming from. I mean, where are they coming from, Sam? Remember, Vonnie, a lot of people get this disease, especially the young again, who are asymptomatic. 
And if you look, listen to some of the top epidemiologists in the world, you have to think about this virus. It's most infectious in terms of it passing on to others during the pre-symptomatic and the early uh, infection in, in, in me, whether symptomatic or not symptomatic. So that's when it's those few days. And then, and then when you look at all the data that's coming out of all these antibody trials, the viral load, the amount of viral, virus in your body, your back of your throat and all that, declines really quickly by day 10, 10 11, uh, day 11. We get um, test results four or five days after we've been tested. What are those people doing in that time? Are they as careful as they should be? So, Sam, in your day job, uh, you are one of the top pharma analysts in the city of London. What are the companies that you talk to and you've talked to for decades, what are they telling you about therapeutics, not vaccines, but just the ability to treat this better as we go into, you know, a second or here in the United States, maybe even a third wave? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of activity going on. Unfortunately, clinical development, drug development is a little bit of a game of snakes and ladders. You go up, you seem to be doing really well, and you just fall on a, uh, a, a ladder on, uh, or a snake. I can't remember which way it goes. I think it's the snakes. <laughs> and you go all the way back to square one. So, you know, just today we had a bit of news from Regeneron saying that their antibody didn't seem to work in very severe patients in hospitals. So these folks are all doing what they can with what science tells them is likely to work and then testing it out in a virus and a medical condition that we're learning on the hoof about. So we are getting progress, but it's a little bit like two steps forward, one step back. Um, and, and, and you know that we're getting progress because the, the, the death rates are, are lower. The mortality rate is lower. Unfortunately, we're learning more about how awful the virus is in people who catch it in terms of long COVID and, and who knows what long-term issues we're cooking up with this virus once we've been infected. Sam, you know, it's, it's a tough tough conversation but companies sort of want their employees to come back to work in the office place I mean not all of them and and there's extraordinary leniency when it comes to that but some employees do want to go back I mean what's the advice for those employees yeah I mean look in in France we just had our lockdown announced last night or two nights ago yeah it was two nights ago Um, um, as of midnight last night so basically People who can work from home have to work from home. It's not a choice anymore. Um, they, they, they're taking their time to figure out what to actually tell people in terms of guidance. I, if the UK's trajectory continues the way it is with all the various uh, tier one, tier two, tier threes, if they don't work out, remember France tried the same thing. They tried curfews and, and early closure of restaurants. I think it just didn't help. Um, so this is why I'm, what I'm saying in what I wrote. Maybe the only solution, a little bit like when you have a wildfire, the only way to manage it is to cut a whole bunch of forest out so that the fire can jump over to the next side. And maybe that's the only way. It's a horrible thing to say, and I really wish I didn't feel that this could be the only way, but it seems like that's the only way. Sam, just, are schools open or closed there in France? Oh, schools are open. Schools, schools are open, okay. but they've become a lot more clever about how to manage the groups of students and all that. Yeah, and also the data appears to suggest that there's less transmission among school children 
and then bringing it home. Then there is at universities, so they've shut right. universities. Right, interesting. Hey, Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Sam Fazelli, he's a senior pharmaceutical analyst, and he also runs the European research business for Bloomberg Intelligence, one of the leaders uh, of that great business for Bloomberg. And uh, he's also writing for Bloomberg Opinion right now, sharing some of his expertise on the healthcare uh, business. He joins us on the phone from uh, France, where, again, uh, the lockdowns are beginning. And the question, Vani, is, you know, I guess for the folks in the UK, is that kind of the next step for the UK is lockdowns. And again, here, that doesn't seem to be much appetite for that in the States, but we will monitor it closely. We had a bunch of the big tech and tech media names reporting last night. Let's break it all down. There was absolutely nobody better to do that with uh, than Lauren Lauren Martin. She's a senior media analyst at Needham & Company because her research coverage, it's really a convergence of where the media and technology space is. She covers the big tech names like Apple, Amazon, Google, the traditional media names like Discovery and and Disney and those types of things, and even some of the technical players, the Rokus of the world uh, and the, the Snaps brings it all together with a really good overview look of the space. Laura, thanks so much for joining us here. Let's start off with Apple. Stock's trading off about 5%. I thought the numbers were good. Is this just a stock price perfection giving a little bit back? You know, maybe. I think it's really overemphasis on iPhones. iPhone sales were weak, and China was down 30% year over year uh, in the quarter. You know, we would say, we would sort of counter that by saying what we liked the most about Apple's earnings was they hit an all-time high installed base of active devices with um, iPad and Mac sales up 43% and 30% respectively. So their installed base is growing. Second, they added 35 million subscribers uh, in the last 90 days, so they're out 585 uh, million paid subscribers, which is an annuity stream type of revenue, which is fantastic. And then services hit a record, almost $15 billion at a gross margin of 67%. So they're, they're I was quickly approaching the gross profit contribution of the entire hardware sector of Apple, even though Apple is known as a hardware company. So all of those things are really positive to us. Laura, how concerned should we be about the drop of 29% in China? Is it a one-time thing? Is it due to added competition? And will it impact Apple going into the future? So I think China is predominantly a new phone market. And that you might recall that they're, um, they actually announced the new iPhones um, three weeks later this year. So they're in a different quarter than last year. So last year you had two weeks of the new iPhones. Um, and so the Chinese are very active in that. We expect the new iPhone 12s, and there's four different models of those, which started two weeks into the October quarter to be a major seller in China. So we would expect China to rebound in this quarter and going forward. Hey, Laura, how about the uh, services business for Apple? I know speaking to you in the past, that's really a, a growing part of their business. It's a business that investors are really focused on. How's that progressing? Um, really fantastic. So one of the things they're doing that's very clever, and in fact, I think they're getting sued by one of their competitors for this, is they're bundling things. So rather than just paying for music separately from Apple TV, separate from Apple Fitness, separate from Apple News, they're introducing, I think on Monday, actually, a really big bundle where you're, you, know, you can subscribe for $20 a month for your whole family to like nearly every service they have. And if you really, really want everything they offer, including like arcade, the video game streaming space, you can pay $30 for your entire family. So I don't know about you, but I'm paying like $10 for cloud and my kid's paying $10 for something. You know, if we wrap it all up, we can have like twice as many services for half the money. I think that's really smart because that should drive services growth higher, which is fantastic for margins. 
Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see many, many households paying that. It's pretty genius. Uh, Laura, what should we... When we consider Amazon, what should we be concentrating on? Because obviously it grew its revenue by something like 37%. Again, though, I mean... You can annoy people if you don't deliver. And for example, Amazon Prime hasn't been able to be, you know, as quick as it used to be because there's so many people on the system. You know, there are things that are sold out and so on. Can Amazon hold on to the market share that it's gained? So um, I really think Amazon is the best position stock sort of regardless of whether COVID is short or long, I think it's the most hedged because if we're going to go into lockdowns again, that means e-commerce is going to be, you know, more in demand, especially for the holiday season. And I think one of the things that people are saying is that the holiday season may really tax the logistics capabilities. Well, Amazon sort of got trial by fire at the early days of the pandemic. And then on Prime Day, when that Prime Day was up 60% year over year. So it keeps testing. It's logistics chain. So I expect its actually ability to deliver during holidays to be better than anybody else's about getting things to you on time and in a, in a you know, um, safe manner. So I actually really like Amazon for either the, uh, the economy opening or COVID lockdowns going longer. I think Amazon is the best, most hedged, best positioned in that. They win either way. Hey, Laura, how about the, uh, the cloud business for Amazon? That's been such a great story there and really a profit story, you know, relative to the core e-commerce business. Um, it's getting more competitive, though. Microsoft's making big gains. Alphabet's making big, big gains. How do you view the uh, Amazon Web Services business? Yeah, really excellent. Like we just got from Google last night that they're going to start breaking out their cloud businesses because these are such great profitable businesses. So, yeah, in the quarter, Amazon reported $3.5 billion of uh, profit on $11 billion of revenue in their cloud business. I would expect it to be equally as profitable for Microsoft and for Google. Um, and I do think they're making inroads, but I also think, Paul, that this whole this, – this has been accelerated, that COVID has accelerated the move to the cloud by all businesses. So I think the pie just got bigger by being brought forward for two years because of COVID. Everybody's moving to the cloud faster, businesses. So there's just sort of a bigger pie for everybody. And Apple is the dominant provider, but if there's room for other people now, thanks to COVID, to also, like Google was talking, they do a lot of states. They do the state of Virginia. They do countries. They're doing more, it feels like government contracts for their cloud business. And Amazon, as you know, really specializes in small businesses moving to the cloud. Laura, we're nearly out of time, but uh, how do you feel the executives did this week? In front of Congress, I should um, say. I'm sorry, executives or Congress? Oh, in front of Congress? Right, okay. sorry, on Capitol Hill, so yeah. talking about Google, Facebook, and Twitter. Exactly. Um, lots of criticism about Twitter, but I'll stand aside there because I don't cover Twitter. You know, I think there's a, I am very worried about Facebook. I think it has the highest regulatory risks in 2021 because I think both sides of the aisle think that Facebook has become a referee for news and it basically is a gatekeeper to information. That scares conservatives more, but really even Democrats feel that their actually livelihood is at risk with Facebook actually making the prioritizations of what people see in their newsfeed. So I sort of feel like Facebook is, has the highest risk of getting fined or broken up or having some kind of negative regulatory consequence in 2021, both by EU and by the U.S. So I'm scared about that for Facebook, less so for Google and Apple and Amazon. 
All right, Laura, we uh, have to leave it there, but very much appreciate your time. So fun speaking with you. You cover some of the um, really companies that we just are talking about daily at this point. Uh, That is Laura Needham joining us there on Google and Facebook. Uh, Sorry, Laura Martin from Needham. I always say that. Laura Martin, Needham analyst and uh, talking to us about Apple, Amazon, Facebook and Google. So, Paul, we'll do it all again next week. It should be an interesting week next week. I think there's a little event maybe on Tuesday. (laughs) on Tuesday and so the build up and then the days after are going to be very interesting. We're just going to bring in Dominic Nolan, Senior yeah, Managing that. Director at Pacific Asset Management. Dominic, you've got various scenarios laid out and what would happen to the bond market uh, say for example in the event of a change of presidency and a vaccine success. Let's start there. What happens to bonds if that happens? Hi, can you hear me okay, Bonnie? Sure can. Okay, great. I think it really depends on which way the Senate goes. Assuming POTUS goes to to Biden, in that particular case, and let's assume the House stays blue, then you have, in theory, it would be a blue wave. So the Senate also goes blue. You most likely have extreme stimulus in there. And that will be, to some extent, offset, which is good for the economy, probably offset a little bit by an increase in taxes. But as it relates to rates, I would expect rates to probably start to move up a little bit. I mean, we've been we've been had a huge pressure on rates from a downward side. If you have a thought of massive stimulus, then you have the inflation monger start to enter the market. And I would expect a bit of a, a steepener on here. So the long end starts to move up with the expectations of massive, massive fiscal spending. If, however, the Senate stays red, they will probably be a block to extreme stimulus. I think if Biden wins and the Senate stays red, they'll be a block to anything he wants to do. So I would envision a scenario where horse trading takes place, where you want stimulus to come into the system. At the same time, you know, the Senate would be blocking, trying to block that or mute that, or in exchange, they would want lower taxes. And in that particular case, that's it's much more uncertain. And that's the combo that I think um, – yeah, it would be uncertain. And I would say if they couldn't get stimulus passed in a time where COVID space, the COVID cases are spiking like they are, you might have a situation where rates continue to drop with the expectation there's not enough stimulus to support the economy. So those are the, it really depends to me on which way the Senate goes. Dominic, you know, I, obviously we, we do have those uh, electoral uncertainties. But if you listen to central bankers around the world, um, it just feels like an environment where rates are lower for longer in general. So how do you know fixed income investors like you good folks at Pacific Asset Management, how do you think about you know, the, the kind of the one to two to three year pool here? Where do you make money? It's a great question. I think from the standpoint of re- return profiles are going to be muted. Honestly, you're sitting in a, an environment where most most of the short-term paper is, or a lot of it's yielding below one. So if you can somehow return one to two percent in that range, I think that's actually pretty attractive given the status of short-term rates across the globe. And when we look at it, the central banks are a massive support for the system for liquidity. So we do feel that your downside is is backstopped to a large extent by what people have called the Fed put. And you go, you know, and there's there's room for total return, probably in some spread products. Certainly, a little bit of compression on the corporate side. You probably have some elements in structure product. Uh, we're not mortgage folks, but I think the global the global demand for yield 
will continue to grind spreads tighter. That's our that's our medium term view, uh, given the central bank support. So, if you can get 25, 50 basis points of of spread on top of clipping a coupon, that's how you get to your one and a half to two percent yield for short duration for one to three part of the curve. That's what I would venture, Paul. What happens to the higher yield uh, elements of the market and even the junk bond market? I mean, how tight can those spreads go? We talk about that a lot on the floor, and U.S. high yield sitting with a with a five handle on it, and we feel is that can it go much lower until you look across at you know European high yield, which is sitting at two and a half. So on one hand, I'd say you know from from a compensation for risk standpoint, I feel as though high yield shouldn't even be at this level, but I think I'm just living in a world that is dated in a new central bank, you know, monetary or QE world. It can certainly go tighter. And you think about, again, Europe, European high yield at two and a half, that's an economy that's not growing as fast as the United States. So investors are willing to take sub 3% on leverage finance over there. So there is certainly an argument in the United States you could grind inside a five. So Dominic, just real quick, 30 seconds, give me a sense of credit quality that you're seeing in your portfolio right here. It's a bit bifurcated. I think our approach, we've taken more, you know, tilt to the more performing companies and been very, very selective as it relates to what we call the COVID sectors. And our COVID sectors, the class of your hospitality, your gaming, your travel, your entertainment, those are areas where if we go through another wave, there are many of these leveraged finance structures that just won't make it. And you'll see another wave of, of bankruptcy. So from our side, we're tilting certainly the more liquid the side credit. of the market, better, better credits, but it's really yep. about, you know, it's the business model right now. There are yep. so many business models that were, quote, recession-proof, but not pandemic-proof. Yeah, that's and right. And I think you've had to adjust that. All right. And so that, for us, that's our approach. All right, Dominic, thanks very much. We really appreciate your thoughts. As always, Dominic Nolan, Senior Managing Director of Pacific Asset Management. Right now, let's head down to Washington, D.C., our Washington studios, get world and national news. We can do that with Nathan Hager. Nathan. Well, our next guest writes, this year hardly needs the ghosts and ghouls of Halloween to make it scary for investors. Sarah Ponzak is with us in studio. She is going as a bear for this Halloween, right, Sarah? <laughs> well, I'll start it off by saying this is an annual tradition that we do. Every year ahead of Halloween, we ask money managers across Wall Street to send us the charts that scare them the most. So it's our annual tradition uh, out today ahead of Halloween tomorrow, of course. Uh, and it was quite the compilation. Sure, 2020, we could say, has been haunting enough. The amount that we have all gone through in markets, uh, just in life too, dealing with COVID-19 and, and whatever else may be, uh, within financial markets, there's plenty to worry about, uh, as these money managers did point out. I'll highlight a few of them. Steve Chevron, he's a portfolio manager and equity strategist over at Federated Hermes. He brings it really close to home with the election coming up in just a couple of days, election night on Tuesday. He points out the fact that mail-in voting, voting is obviously very high, hitting upwards of 40 to 50% of the vote this year. Uh, given historical patterns, that means that we could see over 1 million ballots rejected in the um, 
upcoming election, he says. So if this is the case, I know we all hope that we will have a result on Tuesday evening. We know that that might not be the case. And for markets, if we do have a contested election and if we have this drawn out process, that would just introduce more volatility, more uncertainty. On top of that, some other themes that were introduced. Jason Thomas over at the Carlyle Group pointed out corporate debt uh, rising. Now, corporate debt to GDP is rising above 15 percent, which is well, 15% above the prior record. So plenty of spending and companies have been forced to spend more uh, if they can and borrow even more um, during the COVID crisis. One that I really enjoyed uh, and really was just telling this week because when we had that large sell-off on Tuesday, although we are seeing a sell-off again in markets today, not to quite the same extent. On Tuesday, it was interesting because hedges didn't work. And one of those hedges being gold. Gold actually fell in tandem with equity markets too. So what Evan Brown over at UBS Asset Management points out is that the rolling 63-day correlation between gold and the S&P 500 has been positive for a majority of this year. So what that means is that gold may no longer be, he calls it, a reliable ballast to portfolios during risk off period. So especially for multi-asset investors, those who are looking for protection, hedges, that's a concern. Hey, sir, what did you make of the, or what we're seeing today in, in terms of the NASDAQ, the NASDAQ 100 on the heels of uh, those tech earnings last night? I, you know, I kind of looked at the tech earnings broadly defined as uh, pretty darn good, yeah. yet you know, the market's not seen it that way. They were. David Bonson over at the Bonson Group, uh, I, I received this excerpt from him this morning, and I thought it put it together very nicely. He said, none of Thursday's tech earnings results were bad, and some were spectacular, but the market is reacting negatively because when something is priced for better than perfection, it becomes pretty hard to live up to those expectations. And that's the world that we're living in right now. Not only were these companies priced for perfection, they are priced for better than perfection. And you see the tiny little flub, take Apple, for example, uh, missing iPhone estimates, not providing guidance. At the same time, a theme that I have heard highlighted is the fact that Almost every single one of these companies highlighted uncertainty around COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And tech is supposed to be the area of the market that can kind of withstand this. Uh, we saw earlier in the week with SAP over in Germany that they really had to pull back on guidance for 2021 because they are concerned that lockdowns over in Europe are going to hit them headed into 2021. In the beginning of the year, when we think about the rally that we saw, investors kept saying, look beyond 2020, look into 2021. Well, now, if we are seeing COVID cases rising, and if these companies that are supposed to be the beneficiaries or at least your safe havens being the big tech companies are still expressing doubt or uncertainty surrounding it, you have to wonder if 2021 is really going to provide the boost that is right now built into markets. Also, though, the Apple news that China sales were down 29% of the quarter, I mean, that sort of should reverberate through markets, right? I mean, this was not just an Apple story, but generally a China consumption story. Right. Well, it's interesting because we have seen such a strong economic bounce back in China. So to see that China sales for the iPhone, we are were very depleted, down 29%. It causes some concern. Now, that does make me wonder, though, is this more so a competition issue for Apple in China uh, with other phone makers, smartphone makers uh, in the area, or is it more so a true economic macro consumption picture and reflective of that, especially ahead of the holiday season? But it is interesting to see that discrepancy, considering that we have seen this strong economic comeback over in Asia. I tell you what, I still look at the VIX here, uh, you know, at 38, the market is still, you know, I think the investors are still very concerned here as we look into 2021. 
Look, they certainly are. The VIX at 28, uh, if you try to extrapolate that to mean what is the VIX predicting in terms of percent changes a day, I mean, that is, that's a gain or a loss of more than 2% a day that it's predicting. Right now, we see the S&P off a little bit more than 1%. But you consider what is upcoming right now. We have an election. We have COVID-19 case counts on the rise. We have restrictions over in Europe and concerns yep. about we could see restrictions in the U.S. We don't have a fiscal package. So the amount of risks that are out there right now are just very large and they're also front of mind for investors and the reality is we're going to be dealing with volatility yeah i think you're absolutely right there and i think that's what the market's telling us sarah thanks so much for joining us sarah ponzek cross asset reporter for bloomberg news uh giving us her thoughts on the markets here again you know we had those tech numbers last night generally very solid but the market is clearly underwhelmed with the nasdaq the tech heavy nasdaq trading off two percent here Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.